0: Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. That is stanza four of the great hymn, God Loved the World So That He Gave. mentions being justified there. Now, there are a lot of ways that that word is misunderstood today. And even among Christians, justification by faith can be misunderstood. Is there another way to understand justification in a more objective way, where one doesn't go searching for faith in one's heart or outwardly in one's works? Welcome back to Issues cetera. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the doctrine of justification, Dr. Jack Kilcrease. He's associate professor of historical and systematic theology at the Institute of Lutheran Theology, adjunct professor of philosophy at Aquinas College, and author of the new book, Justification by the Word, Restoring Sola Fide. Jack, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much, Todd.
0: What does justification mean?
1: Justification is a uh, specifically... Uh, Pauline term in the Bible, Paul, that is to say the Apostle Paul uses it, and it refers to us being judged righteous for the sake of Christ, it Was of course, at the center of the controversies of the uh, Reformation.
0: How is justification by faith, well, uh, useful, often misunderstood?
1: Well, in the history of Protestant theology, uh, many or I would say most Protestant theologians have agreed with Luther that justification, that is to say God's judgment of us as righteous for the sake of Christ, is received and applied to us by faith. The problem is that the emphasis of most Protestant theologians has been on the authenticity of faith, because the reasoning tends to go, if I have faith, then I must be justified. So the focus then becomes on proving how one has faith. Luther's emphasis, of course, was always on the fact that we look to God's word outside of ourself, both in the preaching office, but also in the sacraments. And as Luther would also mention, the words of mutual consolation between brethren to find God's judgment of uh, justification. So the history of Protestant theology sadly has then been marked by people essentially trying to prove that they have genuine faith and this more or less has, in my view, turned into a form of covert works righteousness that in many ways is just as bad as a lot of the uh, problems with works righteousness in the uh, medieval church. So people come up with ways of proving their faith through having uh, lots of good works, uh, sometimes called fruit counting, having a special kind of conversion experience in the case of the holiness tradition and John Wesley um, actually ceasing to intentionally sin, speaking in tongues and more extreme versions of the um, snake handling churches, right? So, the whole point of snake handling is that snake handling is the sort of thing that true believers would do. It reminds me a lot of what Bill Blankton talks about in the Apology, where he talks about how works righteousness has a tendency of kind of snowballing. Um, In other words, one form of works righteousness doesn't really work, which then means that you add on more works. So in this case, it ends up being more sort of psychological works, signs of authentic faith, and it tends to have just sort of ballooned in the history of Protestant theology.
0: Why do you prefer the term justification by the word?
1: Because it emphasizes that when we look to our justification, we look out for something outside of ourselves. It's not to denigrate faith. Faith is of course, very central to Luther faith is the medium by which we receive justification. And I never want to uh, deny that. It's very important, a biblical truth, but where the gaze of the eye needs to be is outside of ourselves, not reflecting on the authenticity of our faith, but on the presence of Jesus and the word and the sacraments telling us that we are justified for his sake and not based on any kind of psychological or moral thing within us.
0: Why do you begin with the creation narrative when discussing God's justification by the word?
1: Because one of the uh, important truths of the biblical faith that I think sets it apart from other, we might say, world religions and philosophical traditions is that god speaks creation uh into existence that it's god's efficacious word that gives creation its reality as well as its uh, meaning and its identity and if we're looking at the biblical narrative as a whole and connecting justification in the, the era of the new testament to god's first work of creation just as we're in the new creation so to speak given our identity and our status before God by God's speech, God speaking to us through the word and sacrament ministry of the church, the word of the risen Jesus. The first creation also has its identity and status because of God's word. God calls creation into existence and gives its identity and status and then pronounces on it very good. Not to say it needs a pronunciation of very good in the sense that there's something defective about God's creation, but rather that God recognizes and gives status to creation by his word, and that all creatures exist on the basis of God's word.
0: Where do we find justification in the Old Testament?
1: Well, justification is all over the place, uh, particularly justification by word. If you read the the Old Testament, it's really the word driving God and his creative word driving the action from the beginning to the end. After we have the fall into sin, we we have the first gospel, the uh, what's called the Proto-Lengelion in Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent. Though it's a prophecy, I don't think that we should just merely take it as information. It certainly is information, but it's also an efficacious word. Luther talked about in his debates with uh, Ulrich Zwingli a distinction between what he called uh, do words and call words. So, there's call words in the Bible, and call words are words as they're used as we might say, uh, sound symbols. Um, so the Bible is filled with testimony. So configurations, we might say of sound symbols telling us about states of affairs in the world that are. So I say, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. Okay. So that those would be call words. It would be signifiers that signify a state of affairs. Then there are deed words or do words, and uh, they call into existence new realities. We have this in in normal human language as well. When I say I bestow on you this office, or I pronounce you man and wife, we're we're doing something with our words, right? They're mm-hmm. efficacious, and that's what we have in Genesis one. He, God is calling into existence realities that don't exist. But also, when creation is sunk into sin, when God makes promises or prophesies, He's calling those realities into existence too. So it's not merely that He's telling us that He will say, send a savior, but He's actually speaking in an efficacious way to call into existence the whole history of redemption that will bring about the savior so when god calls abraham and justifies him because of his faith in the coming of the seed which we know from paul and galatians to be christ he's calling into existence abraham's faith but also the entire people of israel and the entire people of god by his effective word and in fact, uh, justifying them in light of the fact that he, what he will do with Christ and the cross in the future. I would say this is, uh, you could also see justification present in the Old Testament with God establishing the sacrificial cult in the tabernacle in the temple, which is meant to be a prefiguration, as we know from Hebrews and many other New Testament writings of the work of Christ. And also the establishment of mediators who, in spite of Israel's perpetual failing, stand in a sense as representational persons. We can see this pattern in uh, the uh, story of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. God wants to speak to all the people. The people fail. So Moses is the stand-in. We see that God wants to make Israel a priestly nation. They worship the the golden calf. They fail. The Levites, you know, and then Aaron's sons stand in for them. They're supposed to be able to govern themselves in the land. They fail. God establishes kings in, uh, in spite of it. And the prophets, priests, and kings, of course, then not only are prefigurations of Christ, but they also show the nature of how justification works. Because in justification, one person stands in for another person. So Christ is our person before God, just as Example, the priest represents Israel when he atones for sins on the Day of Atonement and does what Israel can't do, right? Sadly, of course, as we know from chapters like Ezekiel chapter 34, Israel utterly fails and also its mediators fail, which uh, reveals the universal sinfulness of Israel itself, but also of all humanity. And so, for that reason, there needs to be one great mediator, one great stand in, one person standing in for another jesus as the true mediator between god and humanity
0: dr jack kilcrease is our guest we're talking with him about the doctrine of justification he's associate professor of historical and systematic theology at the institute of lutheran theology adjunct professor of philosophy at aquinas college and author of the new book justification by the word restoring sola fide
2: Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Logia Journal, the confessional dogmatic series. The works of Kurt markhort and many other resources are all brought to you by Luther Academy. Did you know that during this time of COVID-19, your purchases and donations help Luther Academy supply these same resources to pastors around the world? Please consider helping us with this important need through your prayers and financial support. Learn how you can help by visiting lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. What makes Christ our Savior Lutheran Church in Freeburg, Illinois, so special? Our new members talk about the family atmosphere, the welcoming people, and the outstanding music. But most importantly, you'll be confronted with your sin and comforted with the assurance that Jesus has removed that sin so that you can live each day as his baptized and forgiven child. Christ Our Savior Lutheran Church is at 612 North State Street in Freeburg, Illinois. Sunday worship is at 9 a.m. Sunday school and Bible classes at 1020 a.m. Call 618-539-5664. I
3: am beautiful
4: because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood.
3: Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God
4: in His ways.
2: Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713 855-2681. College
4: Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konski, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The college preparation station in maryville illinois cpsprep.com metro east lutheran high school in edwardsville illinois is looking for an english teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown st louis the position would involve teaching upper level dual credit english classes for more information send an email to principal j J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E at M-E-L-H-S dot org J. Krause at M-E-L-H-S dot org
0: We're talking about the Doctrine of Justification. Dr. Jack Kilcrease is our guest. He's authored the new book, Justification by the Word, Restoring Sola Fide. Where do we find justification in the ministry of Jesus?
1: One thing I highlight in my book is Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man, which is, is, is really his favorite title for himself. He certainly does use Son of God and other titles for himself. But Son of Man is a very significant one. And it's, of course, taken from the book of Daniel, where the, there's a figure, a mysterious figure, called oh, the Son of Man who um, rides in a cloud to the heavenly court with God. Now, some people have drawn sort of some interesting parallels here between what the high priest does on the Day of Atonement, where he, in a sense, rides into God's presence in the tabernacle or temple on a cloud of incense, because he has to burn the censer filled with incense. So it makes it, in some sense, look like he's riding on something. So we could look at the Son of Man as a sort of high priestly figure. We think of Christ as being our great high priest. And of course, it was the job of the priest to judge between clean and unclean. And this is one of the directives that. God gives to the Levites and to us Aaron and his sons. In intertestamental Jewish literature, the Son of Man becomes a kind of cosmic judge who at the end of time is going to judge living in the dead. Of course, we're not really entirely sure what they think this is. But that actually parallels how Jesus uses the term in the Gospels. Um, there's, of course, many chapters where Jesus talks about being the great cosmic judge, Matthew 25 being the chief example of this. And the way I understand the, the ministry of Jesus, in part, is that Jesus' own claim to forgive sins is connected with his status as a son of man. He, he rather explicitly says this in John, where he says that he's been given judgment because he is the son of man. In other words, he is the cosmic judge. But he's not just the cosmic judge at the end of time. He's come ahead of time, in a sense, to give the judgment to us now. In many ways, I think this is what is so offensive to Jesus about Jesus to the Pharisees. It's not that the Pharisees were I mean, from what we know about them, they weren't necessarily just meanies who you know wanted to harm the marginalized or something like that, as the, they sometimes get portrayed in kind of popular preaching. They were genuinely worried that the people who Jesus was forgiving weren't going through the, the natural channels to get in, back into the people of Israel through the temple rituals. And Jesus says, well, something new is here. I'm the great cosmic judge. I've come ahead of time. I will tell you the verdict. You don't need to go to the temple because I provide forgiveness because I'm the one who's going to be judging the living, the living and the dead at the end of time. And you can have confidence in my judgment of imputing you as righteous because of what I say in the present. And um, the important thing, of course, is that this claim is vindicated in the resurrection, of course, the death and resurrection, the death and the death of Jesus, of course, he pays for all the sins that he forgives. But in the resurrection, Jesus has claimed to be this great cosmic judge. Are vindicated, and he also promises that he will be with the disciples in the in the word and sacrament ministry of the church. So that that same promise, that same promise that he can tell you that you're forgiven, that he's the going to be the judge, and he but he's forgiven you ahead of time, is now present in the ministry of the disciples in the promise that they can bind and loose sins, in the promise that. The um, Lord's Supper and then baptism forgive sins. Uh, remember, Jesus says, when two or three gather in my name, I am in the midst of them. So, Jesus is present when his name is proclaimed, but of course, his name is attached to baptism. His name is attached to the Lord's Supper. His name is attached to as he phrases it in, in Luke, the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name, okay? And his name is, is like God's name in the Old Testament tied up with his presence. So Jesus, the risen Jesus is present in that very word and in those very sacraments directly present to you, telling you his verdict, right? So that enables the ministry of the Christian church. And it's an, it's an incredibly remarkable thing read in context because what Jesus is really doing is he's giving over the temple ministry which prefigured him to the disciples and to the Christian church in general, so that they become, as Paul puts it, the uh, stewards of the divine mysteries and of the very presence of the risen Jesus.
0: So, go into a little more detail on the Apostle Paul. How does he build upon the teaching of justification?
1: Well, the interesting thing is to me is that uh, Paul, in many ways, starts exactly where Jesus starts. So, the, the conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees breaks out because of table fellowship with sinners. And it breaks out in Galatians precisely because Paul was having table fellowship with Gentiles, right? And what Paul builds on Jesus is insight among how the Gentiles are dealt with. So in Jesus' own ministry, it's those who don't think that they have their own righteousness who are the ones who are going to be justified and vindicated on the last day. But Paul says, why can we make uh, Gentiles obey the Torah? Because after all, when you're signing on to the Torah, you're signing on to the whole Torah, not just the ritual law. So people, many people uh, in Judaism thought, well, you do the ritual law, and that provides maybe a kind of framework which sin can maybe be kind of dealt with through the sacrifices and so forth. And maybe God will kind of overlook it if, as long as you're, you're trying to obey the covenant. Maybe he'll even overlook it because of the uh, merits of the patriarchs. The patriarchs were considered really good people, and so there was many Jews believed that there was a reservoir of goodwill that Abraham and Jacob and the rest of them had built up with God. And Paul says, well, no, that's not, none of that's right at all. When you sign up for the ritual law, you're signing up for the um, moral law too. And, um, you know, you can certainly cut some skin off of your uh, genitals, uh, so to speak, in form of circumcision, but you also then have to obey God with all your heart and mind and soul, and nobody can really do that. And so you're going to simply subject yourself to the curses of uh, Sinai when you do that kind of thing. And... Jesus came precisely to overcome those curses of Sinai and so Gentiles as Gentiles without signing on to the law of Moses can also be then vindicated by Jesus and judged righteous in the present just as Jews can be in fact the law never worked for the Jews in fact it really just cursed them and that's precisely why Jesus had to die on the cross if Jesus had to die on the cross the law doesn't save right so i I think that's a very accurate reading what's going on with paul and i think it's important that he uses the term justification that is to say to judge righteous because it puts the teaching of justification in kind of the same context that we have in jesus where in the case of jesus jesus is concerned with what will happen at the last judgment and it it thinks of jesus and of course as serving as, as a judge and the question is of course What's going to allow you to have the status of of being righteous before the the great we may say cosmic judge at the end of time, and uh, it's precisely the word of God receiving the righteousness of Christ itself by faith. Uh, Jesus Himself present in the word and the sacrament ministry that Paul is promoting will bestow this status upon you in the same way that a judge bestows a status on people that he judges righteous, even if they're not righteous. I mean, we can think of numerous people. I mean, I don't want to. Off any feathers, but we can think of numerous people in we might say popular culture who have gotten off of after they've done something wrong. A jury finds them, you know, not guilty. But once the judge has pronounced his verdict and he's bestowed the not guilty verdict on the on them, they can hold that status up to the police or anyone else because they have that not guilty status it doesn't matter if they actually did it what matters is that they have that status that the judge bestowed upon them and what paul is saying is that we have that very same status because of the blood and the merit of jesus
0: we're talking about the doctrine of justification our guest dr jack kilcrease on the other side how do the church fathers treat justification
2: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, as we move farther into St. Luke, we cover the Benedictus Part 2, Nativity of Jesus, Shepherds and Angels, Visit of the Shepherds, Circumcision and Presentation. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider.
3: Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools.
2: It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Peace Evangelical Lutheran Church of Chehalis, Washington. Biblical, historic Christianity. Whose source is scripture, whose heart is the gospel. If you're in Southwest Washington, join us for the divine service. You will receive Jesus, crucified and risen again for the forgiveness of your sins. We promise. For more information, call us at 360-748-4108. What can we learn from our Lutheran
0: forefathers on how to face the challenges of a culture openly hostile to Christianity? Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, has written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, For Such a Time As This. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. You'll also find Pastor Will Whedon's article on the Monthly Psalter, the free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org.
4: Are you ready for war? Are you ready to stand firm in Christ against all odds?
2: Listen to Chapel Services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org.
4: Yes, yes, you are ready because God has made you ready. Your hope is built on Jesus Christ and His righteousness.
3: Did you know that we send out an email each week that details upcoming show topics? It's available for you to include in your weekly church bulletin. Just click the Issues Etc. journal logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, and sign up to receive the church bulletin blurb. It's an easy way to invite your fellow parishioners to listen to Issues Etc. issuesetc.org. Look for the Issues Etc. journal logo and register to receive a weekly bulletin paragraph from Issues Etc. <music>
0: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Doctrine of Justification with Dr. Jack Kilcrease, Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology at the Institute of Lutheran Theology and Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at Aquinas College. Jack, how did the Church Fathers treat justification?
1: Well, it depends on uh, what era we're talking about. For most of the early Church, the issue really wasn't dealt with very much. They tended to be rather busy fighting things like Gnosticism, Trinitarian heresies, like subordinationism or modalism, and then later um, I think you could make that argument, even though the term isn't really specifically used, that when when we're debating, there implicitly is an an issue of justification going on. Because if your listeners might be familiar, Arius, who was the heretic condemned at Nicaea, Uh, what he taught was that Jesus was a creature, kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, that God had made before he had created the world as sort of a go-between between between himself and the world. And by him being obedient, he had been kind of elevated to this divine status in some sense. And so Arius' theology was basically, if you imitate Jesus, then you too as a creature can be kind of elevated and, and be saved. And Athanasius, if you read, for example, his On the Incarnation of the Word, he doesn't really use he doesn't talk in the categories of justification. And after all, it's it, the term justification is a very specifically a t- term that Paul uses. Certainly the concept is present in the rest of the Bible, but it's a very specifically Pauline way of talking. But what Athanasius says is that we're saved because Jesus is God. And in fact, he has this principle, his big slogan is only a God can save, right? And so he goes through the ways that Jesus saves us basically by Atoning for sin—that's that's one aspect. He doesn't emphasize that aspect very much, but that's definitely there. And he talks about how he, you know, defeats death and then Satan and the demons and so forth. And so it's—and so really, even though he doesn't use the term justification, he says Jesus really needs to be God, and and the Nicene Creed needs to be the right articulation of faith because only a God can save. It's it's really only God's doing that we're saved. So that's one you, you could point to that. The person in the among the church fathers that really starts talking about justification is Saint Augustine, and Saint Augustine starts talking about justification because one of his friends starts asking him about divine grace. He can't understand in Romans why Jacob is accepted and Esau isn't. Right, so Augustine really starts thinking about the doctrine of grace as a result of that. And then a couple of years later, a um, kind of eccentric monk from Britain who was Welsh a guy named Pelagius who incidentally was extremely tall and big I guess he was like six foot five and maybe like 250 pounds or something like that so a very interesting looking guy comes down in Rome and starts teaching that we can just bootstrap our way into heaven we could just there's no such thing as original sin if we really put our back into it we can be saved by our own works and Augustine hears about this and really kind of goes through the roof it, this is not faithful to Paul. And what he emphasizes is that humans, because of the sin of Adam, are dead in their trespasses, just like Paul says. Now, most of the church fathers actually hadn't kind of wanted to go that far because they were kind of worried about Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy in the early church that taught that God the creator was actually a evil, like a a bad guy. And so they were really worried about playing up the claims that Creation was really good, but Augustine says, "No, no, creation's good. It's just that we have, are so decrepit because of sin. We're like a, you know, i use an analogy. We're, I mean, we're still a car. We're like a car that gets into a car accident, okay? And we're so we're we're still a car, but we're so smashed up we can't drive down the street, right? So the engine is all busted up and everything like that. But we're still cars, right? So we're still God's good creatures, but we're so busted up that we can't do that. So it's really by God's grace alone that we're saved." Now that sounds really, really good to Lutherans, but then the way that Augustine describes how grace saves us causes a bit of pause. What Augustine read in his version of the Bible, which was a rather bad Latin translation called the Old Rotten Edition. Later on, he used a translation called the Vulgate, which uh, his friend Jerome had translated fresh and was a nicer translation. But in the Old Latin Edition, the word that Paul used that means judge righteous, like a judge judges a a criminal, had been translated as make righteous. So he interpreted that to mean that God's grace changed us, it sanctified us so that we became righteous so that we then would be able to stand as righteous before God on the basis of of our own righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ, maybe the righteousness of Christ forgave our sins or something like that and that's fine, but to be positively righteous before God. And indeed, he even talks about meriting salvation by our, our works, though he says our works are really God's works within us, okay? So even merit is a gift of God. So God is crowning our merits, his own merits within us, that's how he puts it. So salvation is by grace alone, but grace makes us into righteous people. And that then allows for us to have a, a righteous status before God, because we are become righteous in ourselves. And that sadly kind of became the standard position in the Middle Ages. And that was what Luther was reacting to. So Luther was very influenced by Augustine. He read Augustine's writings and and agreed with Augustine very much on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. But on the other hand, he took exception with the idea that we become righteous before God because God sort of renovates our inner disposition to make us into righteous people. It's rather than letting this righteousness of Christ be our righteousness, right?
0: What is Luther's particular breakthrough on justification?
1: Luther, I mean, a couple of different stages in the development of his uh, theology. We always think about, you know, having this, you know, tower experience, which actually probably wasn't all that important. Uh, it became really important because the librarian of the Vatican, this guy, Heinrich Denifella, decided that it was, that when he mentions this in autobiographical fragment, that that was like the definitive moment. And so then Lutheran Lutheran scholars then started acting like this was the really important point. But Luther's transitions are a lot more gradual, and he is essentially kind of two transitions. So early on, Luther believes in this late medieval theology called the Via Moderna, it means the modern way. And we can go into all the details of what that involves. But in terms of justification, the view was... You're righteous because you're made righteous, but to be made righteous, you've gotta to get to get God's attention, so to speak. And that means doing your best morally. And once God sees you're really trying, then God will bestow grace on you so that you can really go the full distance and be a good person, right? And as we know from our Reformation Day uh, stories about Luther, that drove him pretty crazy in the monastery. Luther then went over and uh, studied under this guy, uh, Staupitz. And Staupitz gave him a bunch of copies of Augustine's works. And so he starts reading Augustine and he also reads a lot of kind of medieval mystics. And then he develops this kind of strange idea in the 1510s, which in kind of some ways culminates in the 95 Theses that you're justified by being really humble, okay? So God is gonna save you by grace alone, but he might not save you. (laughs) So what you've gotta do is be really, really humble and be open to whatever God wants to do. That, that, and that's going to make you a good person. So the interesting thing is it's kind of an inversion of do your best because it's like, instead of doing your best and being hyperactive, like you're hyper passive, you're just saying, okay, God, do with me what you want to do. I will embrace, even if you want to send me to hell, that's fine with me. right? So, And that's kind of what fuels the 95 Theses. Now, it's kind of a weird position and, it's kind of, and we could go into more details, but there's some kind of odd inconsistencies in it. And so the second that Ink on the 95 Theses is sort of dry, and his Catholic opponents started attacking him. He starts realizing there's some kind of strange internal inconsistencies in this, and he really starts thinking hard about confession and absolution. Now, if you want to to see, in many ways, kind of the break when there's like a real kind of, I think, Reformation breakthrough, it's it's not when you look at 95 Theses, which which is, I mean. Obviously politically important, but in terms of the, it's a kind of a continuation of his rather defective, what's sometimes called by German scholars, humilitas theologie, so humility theology, right? The document I think that is very interesting is a sermon that he does in in 1519 called The Sacrament of Penance. Okay. And there his great insight is that the word that the priest gives you is. Identical with the word of Christ, that the risen Jesus is present in that word. And so, if when you're wondering, am I justified before God? Am I forgiven? Do I have a status of righteousness before God? What do you look to? You look to the word that the priest gives you when he says uh, in Latin, ego absolvote, I absolve you, right? As you focus on that, that's what you focus on. Don't want to believe it. Well, that's an offense because you're making God into a liar. So notice that. that, Notice the interesting part here. So it's very different than the typical sort of post-Lutheran Protestant conception, where if you believe, then you will be forgiven. Um, If you take the altar call, if you dedicate your life to Christ, or something like that, if you make your decision for Jesus or something like that, then you will be forgiven. That's actually a form of law if you think about it, because you're being asked to still do something, right? So what Luther is saying is that reality is that word that the pastor gives you, okay? Now you can cling to unreality of your unbelief, you can do that, but that doesn't cancel out that your unbelief is a kind of revolt against reality, which, and the reality is that you are forgiven, right? And so I see that as sort of uh, Luther's unique uh, contribution. It's not necessarily a justification by faith. I don't think that sets him apart from the other reformers. Faith, of course, is very important because faith is precisely the thing that appropriates that word. That's a, when he has his big sort of meeting with some of the f- officials from Va- the Vatican like Cajetan. That's actually the a major area of sticking because, because Luther says, well, you receive the word of absolution by faith. That's how you tap into it. And Caetan says, well, no, it's really just uh, submitting to the church and not being in a state of mortal sin or something along those lines. So it's, faith, of course, is very important. And I'm not going to try, again, I'm not trying to uh, trash faith or anything like that. But faith has to be grounded in the word. And the word not only tells you what object you should put your faith in, that is the word of the risen Jesus that you are saved. But it also is an, an effective word, a word that creates faith. Just like God said, let there be light and there was light, but the, the word itself will create your own faith. So you don't have to sit around worrying, did I have faith? Did I not have faith? The word will do it all. And the key is that that word is present in the external thing. There's, there's nothing spiritual that you have to look beyond the external word to. Jesus' word is present in the very word of the pastor. So if you want to find where Jesus' word is, look to the means of grace. Don't look beyond them. Don't look into some kind of internal spiritual experience that you have. Uh, Don't speculate about what God's will might be behind the word, adhere to the word.
0: Dr. Jack Kilcrease is our guest. We're discussing the doctrine of justification and we'll get into election in light of justification next. 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible is the issues etc a book of the month for november this new resource will help you navigate god's word with clarity and confidence 10 questions to ask every time you read the Bible is published by concordia publishing house their phone number 800 325 3040 or browse before you buy at issuesetc.org the issues etc a book of the month 10 questions to ask
4: every time you read the Bible
2: Trinity Lutheran Church
1: in Valonia, Indiana, is a mighty fortress that stands as a bulwark against the attacks of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. We are located in Jackson County, about two miles south of historic Fort Valonia on State Road 135. Join us every Lord's Day for Sunday school and Bible class at 830 and divine service at 930. Come and receive the gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation from God's Valiant One, Jesus Christ, who has conquered death and holds the field forever.
4: You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners, uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23.
2: Old theology, new technology, you're listening to Issues, etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries right up into our own time.
0: Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana.
2: We're committed then to biblical, confessional, Christianity, and Lutheranism, and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can.
0: You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. welcome back to issues etc i'm todd wilkin we're talking about the doctrine of justification with dr jack kilcrease he's associate professor of historical and systematic theology at the institute of lutheran theology and adjunct professor of philosophy at aquinas college dr kilcrease was also the keynote speaker at the recent luther academy conference in prague the theme was his new book justification by the word luther academy promotes confessional lutheran theology and research through conferences scholarly exchanges and publications learn more about their work at lutheracademy.com serving lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth lutheracademy.com dr kilcrease how should we understand rightly understand the doctrine of election in light of justification
1: one of the problems i see in how protestants have kind of developed the doctrine of election is again they abstract it from the word and sacrament ministry of the church now of course it is the case that the New Testament does talk about how God has elected us from the foundation of the world. If, if God redeems us and saves us, it, it's an outworking of gracious plan that God has had from all eternity. Now that's absolutely true. But the problem is for someone like Calvin uh, or even Augustine, we can even mention Augustine, that then they want to start climbing into eternity, as Luther would put it, and then speculating, speculating about, what God is up to. Calvin looks around and sees that some people respond to the word, others don't. And so he says, hmm, something else has to be going on here. And so he starts speculating, okay, well, some, if it's all plan of God and it's, and okay, and some people responding and not responding, I know God planned for the people who didn't respond that they wouldn't respond. That's part of God's plan too. And so you start speculating. And Luther says, well, okay, where should we take our stand? He says, well, you should take your stand on the word and the sacraments, not on speculating about what's behind the word and the sacraments, but on the word and the sacraments. And there's this wonderful passage in the Genesis commentary where he says, Jesus did not come down from heaven to make you uncertain about your election. Look to where God is enacting his plan of election. It's not in your speculations. It's not in your speculating about what's God's plan behind what's going on in the world and so forth. So don't climb into eternity. Look to the word, look to the sacraments. The word and the sacraments are how God enacts his plan of election. Uh, He also has a wonderful letter that he writes to um, a middle-aged woman who was uh, worried whether she was elect or not. And he says, you are elect you are fed by the sacraments. Uh, You have faith in in the promise of your baptism. You have faith in confession and absolution. So focus on God's grace present to those things, enacting his plan of salvation, that he wanted you and you to be safe from all eternity. And he's telling you through baptism. He's telling you through the word of absolution. He's telling you through the promise of the gospel that the preacher is giving to you. He's telling you through the Lord's supper. So don't speculate. Proclaim, proclamation, not speculation, right? So I think would be Luther's uh, attitude.
0: How are the sacraments rightly understood?
1: The sacraments are rightly understood as external means, that physical means that Jesus has put a stamp of uh, promise on. The difficulty, uh, of course, with how most Protestants have developed them, I think in the in light of justification by faith is that they sort of pit the sacraments against justification by faith. I think you probably, you particularly run strongly into this in the Baptist uh, tradition. Now Baptists and Anabaptists typically understand sacraments according to the late medieval understanding. And and the late medieval understanding, well, I wouldn't say the theologians of the late Middle Ages would see it this way, but maybe in the popular understanding. And then the popular understanding, sacraments were seen as things you do, and by doing them, you get divine grace because grace is present in them. And so by doing them logically, you're getting access to divine grace. So Baptists will reason like this. They will say, okay, Paul says that we're not saved by anything that we do. Participating in the sacraments are things we do. Ergo, sacraments can have absolutely nothing to do with salvation because then that would abrogate the principle of salvation by grace and by faith alone. Okay, And I've seen this, this logic repeated numerous times. For Luther though, Luther understands sacraments to use a slogan from Gustin as visible words. So, baptism isn't first of all it's not something you do after all nobody baptizes themselves as far as as far as I know. They're things that of course you receive from the word and sacrament ministry, of the church from the minister of the word, right? And they don't give you a different message than the preaching office or confession and absolution. They are just a visible form of what's auditory, we might say, in the preaching office. So, baptism is the proclamation of the gospel the lord's supper is the proclamation of the gospel it promises you that that very flesh and blood that was sacrificed for you on the cross is now given to you to show you that christ is giving himself to you and that you are forgiven by that very body and blood that you have in fact been mystically united with the death and resurrection of jesus in baptism right and those will perpetually preach to you and sustain your faith Luther has an interesting way of, of talking about this. In some of his Eucharistic writings from the mid-1520s, he says, look, if I preach the gospel to you, I, you might stand around and worry, hmm, maybe God meant that word of the gospel for everybody else, but he didn't maybe mean it for me. And so the sacraments then are important antidote then for Luther for our speculations about did we believe, did we not believe, was the word of God meant for us, was it not meant for us? Because we can see in a visible form, yes, it was absolutely meant to you. The water was applied to you. The uh, Lord's Supper went into your mouth and made you a receiver of that promise. So that's why I think, though certainly we have uh, strictures from Paul himself about misusing the Lord's Supper, so that sort of should be reserved for people who are baptized and um, Communicate members in good standing, but uh, we shouldn't worry the way the Baptists do about who you're going to baptize. <laughs> The question they always worry, and the reform did this too, about who you baptize, what are the we might say the legal conditions. I mean, are you the children of covenant members? Have you really repented beforehand or something like that? so infants, of course, can't do that and so you can't apply the, the baptism to them and so forth. And that's completely wrong headed for Luther because the question isn't, what are the legal conditions that you can bestow baptism on somebody? The question is, does the gospel apply to them? And if all people are subject to sin, no one should ever be denied baptism infants should never uh, be denied baptism because it's not based on uh, your capacities to fulfill certain conditions it's based on the fact uh, that you are a sinner and the gospel applies to you so as jesus says baptize everyone and all nations and proclaim the gospel to every living creature right and uh, that applies to uh, infants as well
0: how is the christian life simply the word in action
1: the early treatise to read about this i would say is in luther is the um, freedom of a christian and what he emphasizes in freedom of a christian is that we're lords of all but we're also servants of all now because of god's word speaking us speaking to us in the preaching office and in the sacraments we become new creatures and we share, we're in union with Christ, and we share everything that belongs to Christ. We are inheritors, as Paul says, of the whole creation along with Christ. That we sit at the right hand of God, even now with Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians. And so, because we have all things, we can we can give all things to our neighbor. We can give our service to our neighbor without fearing that. We're going to lose ourselves. That our uh, that our service is going to be abused in, in some particular way, or that we need to justify ourselves in, in 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 some way before our neighbors or even before God. So when we receive the word of justification, we're freed from having to use uh, the law as a means of justifying ourselves before God, and we can now use it to help our neighbor. So, but what we should understand is that that's not necessarily like something that we're somehow contributing or we're necessarily responding. We can do this precisely because God's word has spoken us forth again as new creatures in the way that He in the beginning spoke forth our first parents to be the original creatures of the original creation, right? So now we're spoken forth as new creatures. And so the love and good works that we show in giving to our neighbor are simply an outworking that creative word that's created us anew in our sanctification to be a servant to our neighbor in the same way that because Christ had all things and because he possessed all things with the father he could sacrifice himself for us as well and so in that way we're really as luther says the uh, supreme imitators of christ that christ is our model like paul talks about in uh, philippians chapter two
0: we're talking with dr jack kilcrease author of the new book justification by the word restoring sola fide about the doctrine of justification why does it stand as the center of christian theology we'll answer that next Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor.
1: What is eternal life? How do you understand it? How do you imagine it? We're full of all sorts of ideas of what eternal life might be like. And yet, the scriptures are clear. Eternal life centers on Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. The November issue of the Lutheran Witness explains some of these misconceptions about eternal life and what the scriptures say. So to learn more, pick up your copy of the November issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, teaching you to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
0: As we prepare for the Advent season this year, it's time for some contemplation. Your Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Don't celebrate another Christmas harkening back to the age of glitter balls? See Ad Crucem's beautifully designed Christmons together with our book describing how they fit into the church year. Visit AdCruesome.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com.
4: To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.
2: Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. He is a omega. Historical. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is
1: the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins.
2: To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church.
0: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Our topic is the Doctrine of Justification. Dr. Jack Kilcrease is our guest. So, Jack, how does justification stand at the center of Christian theology?
1: In any world religion that you look at, the goal of the religion is some kind of salvation, right? And this is true even of like secular belief systems that promise some kind of, we might say, secular form of salvation, whether you're, you know, like, a self-help guru or a business guru or something like that. You're offering a kind of almost secular salvation. So, any belief system, any religion is really defined by the, we might say, the salvation that it offers. So, Luther agreed with this point too, and he called the justification the Hulbd article, the chief article of the Christian faith. And it didn't mean that he would marginalize other teachings. There's, in many, Again, in many quarters of Lutheranism, there's been a sense that we should have like a monism of justification. And that's not really what I'm talking about at all when I say that it's the uh, center of the Christian faith. I think we have to have a robust doctrine of creation, a doctrine of the Trinity, doctrine of atonement, and all these things. But when we look at all these things, if we don't focus them on the, the central goal of Christianity, which is salvation in Jesus, which is essentially what justification means, they become just interesting bits of information. Well, God is three persons and one God. I mean, that's very interesting, of course, on its own. But the Lutheran fathers would talk about how theology is a practical habit, right? So it drives to correct practice, and that means bestowing the gifts of God through word and sacrament. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is good to know in itself, but by having a correct doctrine of the Trinity, it feeds into seeing that... God the Father sent God the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to become man and to die for our sins and to justify us, right? So the whole creedal faith is aimed, uh, this is I think one of Luther's great insights, toward correct proclamation of justification in word and sacrament. And uh, I would say for that reason, it's the center of the Christian faith. And uh, indeed, all the the articles of the Christian faith should, I think, be seen from the perspective that they're driving at the justification of sinners. They're not just interesting bits of information, but they help pastors and Christians in general who want to share the gospel do a very specific thing to proclaim the gospel to people and to create justifying faith through uh, the power of the word.
0: You say that justification of the sinner is a universal event what do you mean by that
1: well lutherans in about the last 200 years have used a kind of a distinction between what they call objective justification and then subjective justification now at the time of the reformation they didn't use this like terminology but basically the concept was there as well i cited a number of passages of luther of uh, this and it's certainly in the confessions as well if you read Paul, Paul can sound, um, is not obviously a universalist by no means. I mean, he certainly thinks that, he does not think that everyone will be saved, but he does use very universalist language oftentimes. If you look at Romans 5, for example, or Romans 4.25, died for our sins, rose for our justification. Well, Who's the hour? Well, it's... Jesus died for everyone's sins. Is so where he rose for everyone's justification. So CFW Walther, who was one of the founders of Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod, talked oftentimes about the Easter absolution that, in, by Jesus being raised by the dead from the dead by the Father, that the Father signaled that he had forgiven the sins of all of humanity, and that that's reality. Okay, now that doesn't mean everyone, of course, will be saved because. Uh, Lutherans then also talk about subjective justification. So that is the response that the Holy Spirit co- creates in our hearts and minds through the word and sacrament ministry of the church. But it is important to recognize that there's an objective justification before there's a, a what's called a sub- subjective justification. That is our reception of this universal proclamation that our sins are forgiven. Because if we didn't make that distinction and say that we are forgiven beforehand that or that god has already made his decision about us then it we would just turn justification to a new law the way that many um, evangelicals do by saying well you can be justified and the condition is you have faith right so it turns faith into a sort of new work maybe a, a work that's easier to do than staying kosher or i don't know selling all your goods and giving them to the poor or something like that but still nevertheless a work so you're not justified because you believe you receive justification through faith, right? I think that's a really important thing in Paul's letters. He he talks about how it's justification is is through faith. So uh, the, uh, the Greek word dia, meaning through is used. So it's not because of faith, you don't fulfill some kind of condition by having faith, okay? And so I think that recognizing that God has judicially decided in favor of all of us, by the resurrection uh, to be a a very important and then central teaching in terms of how lutherans understand justification
0: what then is saving faith
1: well saving faith is trust in the promise of the gospel and the promise of the gospel is that we are judged righteous both in the sense of having our sins forgiven and also being positively righteous for the sake of jesus and then we are uh, promised also on the basis of this eternal life. So what saving faith is, is a firm trust in God's promise. The word of promise and faith are correlated with each other. The word is what faith grabs onto. The word is also the thing that creates faith. We could talk about faith in a broad sense, maybe assent to the, the truth of the faith. And that's certainly important. And that's a, certainly a condition for justifying faith. But Lutherans use faith in a much more narrow sense of saying that Saving faith is trust in the word of the gospel. It's not making a decision for Jesus. It's not agreeing to the deal that Jesus is offering you or something along those lines, or committing yourself to Jesus or something like that. It's trusting in a promise. The emphasis needs to be on receiving a promise that God bestows upon us.
0: So how does justification of the sinner orient him outside himself?
1: St. Augustine talked about being how uh, we're curved in on ourselves in our state of sin. And uh, that means, uh, particularly how Luther interprets that, it means we trust in ourselves. We think that we are the supreme object of our trust. And that is what makes us behave sinfully. So we're oriented towards our own desires and our own inner securities and so forth. And that's what drives on our sin. And so what justification does is it says that's an illusion you can't trust in yourself because you're a sinner and you're also a creature and there's no reason to worry though because God has decided in your favor in the person of Jesus by through his death and resurrection and so that means that you look outside of yourself now for somebody who has saved you from your sins and from the forces of darkness and who promises you that he has secured uh, your very destiny. So you don't have to look to yourself to achieve your own destiny, to create your own status before God, to secure your life in this world, but you look outside of yourself to another. And and that's I think one of Luther's greatest uh, insights in his reading of Paul is that even when people think that they're doing really, really good things, people who are involved in works righteousness may look like they're doing wonderful things, but it means, apart from faith that in fact they're really trusting in their own works so you can be a very righteous person really be concerned with doing the will of god and placing your trust in your own works and that's ultimately why the roman catholic view of justification really wasn't all it was cracked up to be for luther because although the roman catholic church certainly does make an effort to emphasize that we're saved by works but we're saved by works that we can only do because of grace Even with saying that all of our good works are dependent on God's grace, it still places our inner security within ourselves. It's only by seeing that grace is completely outside of ourselves in the person of Jesus that we can completely be reoriented towards trusting in God and trusting in his word and become the kind of creatures that God intended us to be all the way back in the Garden of Eden.
0: Dr. Jack Kilcreese is Associate Professor of Historical and Systematic Theology at the Institute of Lutheran Theology. He's Adjunct Professor of Philosophy at Aquinas College and author of the new book, Justification by the Word, Restoring Sola Fide. You can purchase this book on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Jack, thanks.
2: Thank you very
1: much, Todd.
0: Thursday, on Issues Etc., we'll continue our series, The Difficult Sayings of Jesus, with Pastor David Peterson, and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. Then Friday, we'll discuss suffering in the book of Jeremiah with Dr. Reed Lessing. It is God's declaration. It comes from God. It is made by God. Its truth is founded in His nature, And the foundation of that declaration, that you are righteous before Him, that is His opinion of you, therefore it's the only opinion that counts, that is founded upon the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. As certainly as Christ has kept the law perfectly before His Father, as certainly as He has suffered and died and risen again, all that certainty is yours that you are righteous before God. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening
2: to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy-laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstott.org. You can
0: help save lives in Southern Illinois by participating in 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th. Vigils will be held outside abortion facilities at Granite City, Carbondale, and Fairview Heights, Illinois. For information on Granite City, visit 40daysgc.com. To learn more about Carbondale and Fairview Heights, go to coalitionforlife.com. You can protect mothers and children by joining the worldwide effort of 40 Days for Life, September 28th through November 6th.
3: The Church's Music from the 20th Century. The 17th century The 11th century The 8th
2: century
3: The 4th century The best of the church's music from the past 2000 years. lutheranpublicradio.org